Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Friends, it's so great to worship together, even at this time and in this new and innovative way to be together, focusing our hearts on God. We're going to be continuing our sermon series on what it means for us to be the church, not to do church, not to go to church, but to be Jesus' hands and to be Jesus' feet. Friends, I just want to commend you. You are doing amazing things. There's been a huge outpouring of love and kindness and prayers and giving to be helping uh, our partners in Lebanon through the Emergency Relief Fund. Many of you have been out volunteering, uh, caring for those who can't get out and about. Uh, There's been people helping with the food drives, people who have a heart to help the survivors of human trafficking who have been pressing in there. Guys, we are being the church together, even at this tough time. So this word today is an exhortation in the same direction in which you've been moving. So I just want to thank you and commend you for that. We're going to be looking today at uh, a specific part of what it means to be the church. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, last week we focused in on fellowship and Acts 2. The week before that, Mark took us up to the beginning of Acts chapter 6, which is where we're going to pick it up. Today, we're going to be talking about fighting the good fight. It strikes me that if we're fighting the wrong battles, then we're not fighting the good fight. Have you thought about the hills that you're dying on lately? The hills that some people seem to be dying on lately? They don't always seem to be the right hills. But also, we need to be fighting the right battles in the right way. Because fighting for the right thing in the wrong way is still the wrong thing. And friends, we're going to see, I believe, through the pages of Scripture that we are called to be those who fight the good fight, do it in a sustained way, do it in a way that honours God. So why don't you grab your Bibles, and uh, the words also will be up on screen. We're in Acts chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up here in uh, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was a high Jewish court made up of 70 leaders of Sadducees and and Pharisees and teachers of the law and presided over by their, their high priest. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. God, as we come before your word today, I ask that you would quicken our hearts. We don't think for a second that we come and sit in judgment of it, but rather it sits in judgment of us. It rebukes us, it corrects us, it trains us for righteousness. So Father, give us an ear to hear what you would have to say today. Let my words drift off like chaff. Let your words remain. 
We love you, Lord, and we're expectant that you're going to move. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I was a young guy, I wanted nothing more than to be a professional rugby player. I turned 46 last week and I had this revelation that in fact I'm never going to be a professional rugby player. It's been a bit of a sad week. But anyway, when I was a young guy, the dream was still alive. If you don't know what rugby is, it's okay. You're going to be playing it in heaven for eternity, so you'll be able to catch up then. But it's a game. It's like the father of football. You know, football, I am your father. That's what rugby says. But I was playing this game. I was playing for Scotch College, the school where I was. And I was playing against this other team. And on the other team was a guy who was kind of my arch nemesis. At least in his own mind, he had kind of somehow, along the way, I don't quite know how, decided that he hated me and that I was his enemy number one. Anyway, I took the ball forward. I ran the ball forward and I was caught in what in rugby is called a mall. Some of you are thinking, yeah, appropriate. But I was there in the mall, stuck. The play continues. And this guy, my arch nemesis, was there on the sideline and he had his bunch fist and he was punching me up in the ribs. Boom, up in here, three or four punches, really sore. Now, the referee didn't see it. He was on the wrong side of the mall. And the line judge somehow didn't see it. But I tell you what, the crowd was going bananas. Just like a thunderous roar of outrage that was going on. And the play ended. And I looked at this guy and I'm like, what the heck was that? But I didn't react. I didn't do anything at that point. I, I bided my time. I waited till the next play when he got the ball. And he was, as he was running forward, his hands literally had just touched the ball. When I drove through him like a torpedo, I more or less cut him in half. He was lying on the ground all kind of discombobulated. And I ran up to him and I didn't say anything. I just looked at him and I shrugged. And then I ran off. Now, here's the thing. Everything that I did was strictly according to the letter of the law, straight down the line. There was nothing I could be faulted on according to the law. But there were some issues going on in my heart. There was some bitterness. There was, in fact, some anger. And uh, it's interesting when we come to look at the Word of God that it's about both. So remember, when we come to the Bible to have a mature understanding of it, we need to look at the text and the context and the whole text. What do the words say? And we're going to talk about that. What is the context? What is the biblical context? What is the cultural context? And lastly, what does the whole text say? What does the whole Bible say about us fighting the good fight, about us being the people of peace? Here, a bit of context. As we heard last week, the birth of the church had happened. Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this unbelievable moment in history where the Spirit is given to everyone, not to a select few, but to any who call upon the name of Christ can receive the Holy Spirit. The church had started, and there's the 12 apostles. They're presiding over it. It's amazing times. But they've kind of been overworked, overwrought. It's said that the, uh, the widows and the orphans, and throughout the Old Testament, there's this constant call to care for those who are oppressed, who couldn't look after themselves. The, the refugees, those who are downtrodden, like they're called to care for these people, and the apostles were kind of overwhelmed with this task. So they decided that they would set up some deacons. Now, deacon in the Greek literally means someone who serves, especially who serves the community. And they called seven of these deacons together. Foremost amongst them was Stephen, who we read about today, Stephen the martyr. He was killed later on. Sorry, spoiler alert, but I figure it's 2,000 years old. Some of you may have read it. 
um, but also Philip the evangelist, and we may hear about him in subsequent weeks. But these were mentioned as the deacons, and they were loving the community, they were caring for it. Um, we see that Stephen, uh, in verse 5, a little early on, was a, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And because of the work of these deacons loving the community, it says here in verse 7 that the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Now, we're not even into the passage yet, but I just want to say this first principle I have noticed is true. Have you seen, is it just me, or, or do you have a sneaking suspicion that your neighbours, that your friends, that your family who don't know and love and follow Jesus, they actually don't seem to care all that much about what you think. They don't even really care that much about how you feel about Jesus. But what they do notice and what they do care about is whether you are pouring your life out to care for the community around you, whether your church is caring and loving for the community around it. They do notice that. They did in the first century and they do today. I wonder if you'd be brave enough to press pause on this video right now. One of my mentors this week said, Nick, you've got to allow people to pause and discuss, but to discuss whether you and whether your church is doing that. So some of you paused, some of you didn't. That's fine. Some of you just want to drive on through. But we're going to focus in now on Stephen, on this character. And we're going to contrast him with those who opposed him. In verse 8, it said he was a man full of God's grace and power and he performed great wonders and signs among the people who's full of grace and power. One commentator described this, the kind of connotation of this, that Stephen had both strength and sweetness in equal measure. He had a sweet spirit. Even when things didn't go his way, in fact, especially when things didn't go his way, he had a sweet spirit. I wonder if that could be said of you. How are you when things don't go your way? In all honesty, neither of these things would necessarily be a, an apt description for me for most of my times. But he also had great strength. He also stood in the face of opposition. Shortly after this, as those who opposed him, he, he, he uh, discussed with them and he spoke with great wisdom. A little later on in verse 15, as we read, it said that his face shone like an angel before the Sanhedrin. And you know, this is a strong biblical image of someone who was in a deep and intimate relationship with God. It said it of Moses in Exodus 23. It said it of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, um, that their faces shone. And later on, the strength that he showed as he was dying to be forgiving those who were stoning him, he actually said, God, don't hold this against them, echoing the words of Christ. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen had strength and he had sweetness in equal measure. I wonder how we go with that. But what was happening? Well, we see here, it said that he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, I can't and I would challenge anyone who can give a theologically perfect answer to this connection uh, between expectation and miracles. But certainly there is some kind of connection. They were praying and believing for God to do extraordinary things and God was doing it. God was showing them his face and showing them his blessing. And moreover, it was happening among the people. It was happening in community. It was happening in covenant community. Now, anyways, anyone who's spent more than five minutes with me know, knows that I often go on about this. 
But I think in our day and age, we have an insufficient understanding of covenant community, of giving our lives away in a committed way for those who are our spiritual family. See, the thing is in the West, our culture is individualistic. In fact, nowadays even it's described as hyper-individualistic. We do our own thing. If we don't like someone, we just cancel them. Cancel culture, you've heard that term. It means a lot of things, but at the very least, it also means that if you're doing something I don't like, boop, I unfriend you, either really or virtually. Doink, I unsubscribe to you. I turn off from you. I turn away from you. Friends, we are called, if we are to truly be the church, to not be those who run away from each other, and as in a second we're going to hear, not to be those who run over each other, we are called to be those who run toward each other. Now, some of you who are visual thinkers, you're thinking, well, I run towards someone, but then what do I do? Well, when you're with someone, and of course, you know, an appropriate six feet distance with masks and blah, 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 um, do you run towards each other and then you in turn get to run together towards others who are in need? Don't run away from each other. Don't run over each other. Run towards each other. Now, I'm not going to lie. This last few months have been very heartbreaking for me as someone who cares uh, for in Christian community as a shepherd. There have been people who have left our church. Some have said, we've been saying too much about racial injustice. And, and some have said, we've been saying too much about you know, obeying the government. Some have, over time, said, we've not been saying enough about racial injustice or we've not been saying enough about being obedient to the government. And, and I just want to say with respect, I think they're both wrong. You don't just bail on people uh, because they're saying something that you disagree with. Hear them out. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, it says in the book of James. Covenant community, miracles are happening. There's, God is moving in their midst. They're, they're committed to each other. As we heard about last week, this deep commitment to fellowship. That's what's going on. But opposition arose. It arose from the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, in Jerusalem, this was a synagogue originally that had been set up for those who were freed slaves. And we don't know at this time if that still comprised their membership. But certainly we do know that they were from far afield. You see here it says that they were from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya. They were from Alexandria, of course, which is Egypt. They were from the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. That's Asia Minor. Now, what's important is it says Cilicia. There was a place in Cilicia called Tarsus. Now, some of you Bible dorks, when I said that, your ears pricked up because you know someone who came from Tarsus, don't you? Saul came from Tarsus. Many years later, after he'd been radically saved and met Jesus and had his life turned upside down, he changed his name to Paul. He became Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. After Luke, who wrote what we're reading today, Paul wrote the most words in the New Testament. He was a remarkable leader in the body of Christ. But likely he was here. I want you to remember that. But these people came in opposition against Stephen. They tried to speak against him and, and argue against him, but they couldn't do it. But they were offended by him. They were scandalized by what he said. It's not just in that day. It's also in our day when we run on offense. I've been noticing lately that so many of us have been wandering around just sort of postured towards offense. 
How can I be offended at someone? How can I be offended at something they say? Even friends who have said some things that are really pretty benign, others have been deeply offended by them and gone on to these kind of paroxysms of sadness. You know, at this time, these guys were offended by Stephen. They're offended by things that he said, and I'm gonna, uh, we're going to talk about the substance of those in a second. But I want to challenge us that I don't think we've moved that far in 2,000 years. I challenge you to take the mute challenge. Okay? Next time you're watching your favorite news TV, either online or with your TV, just to turn it down, to turn down the volume, but to put them on mute, to watch their faces and to watch their body language, you'll notice that here's how the narrative goes. Someone has said this outrageous thing. This, they've done this outrageous thing and we're deeply offended. It's, it's just not right and it's just absolutely scandalous. And they go on like this. And the more you watch it, the more you think, yeah, it's, it's actually not right. What they did, that's, that's really dreadful. And I'm a little bit offended. In fact, I'm, I'm really a bit riled up about it now. I think about it and we get whipped up into this place of offense. Stephen, he spoke to them with words of wisdom. They couldn't stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The kindness, the strength, the authority with which he spoke. Friends, what would, what would it look like if we were to be unoffendable? At this time of quarantine, I know there's been some people who God's given amazing revelations to, and that's wonderful. For me, not so much. I've been thinking about two things, encouragement and offense. I've never known anybody who's died because of getting too much encouragement. Encouragement right now is in really short supply, if you haven't noticed. I've seen some astonishingly crazy emails that would peel the paint off of walls that have been sent out. But what would it look like if instead of that, we turned our hearts toward encouraging each other, towards being those who give courage to one another in covenant community? And secondly, what would it look like if we move beyond offense? If we move from being those who are postured towards offense and we thought, you know what, they'll say some things, but humans are never the enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, it says in Ephesians 6. It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. Humans are not the enemy. No, so I'm not going to be offended by them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to have compassion for them. I'm going to be wise. Yes. I'm going to be discerning. Yes. I'm going to be thoughtful. Yes. I'm going to listen, listen to their hearts. What is behind the sadness that they have? What would it look like for us to transcend that? I think Stephen did. I wonder if we could. I know that those who opposed him didn't. But what were they doing? We see here in verse 11 and beyond, they secretly persuaded people. They, they stirred up people. They, they seized Stephen. They, they produced false witnesses. Now make no mistake, what happened to Stephen was an extrajudicial killing in the end through these uh, conspiring and, and this kind of colluding and those who came against him and, and it implies by bribery and wrong, wrongful means, they came against Stephen, they whipped up these charges against him and then they had this trial before the Sanhedrin and then Stephen in chapter 7 gives this unbelievable uh, sermon in fact, apart from the words of Jesus, it's the, the longest sermon that we have recorded in the New Testament. It's the whole Old Testament in a nutshell. Uh, if you don't have time to go and read the Old Testament, just read Acts chapter 7. It's mind-boggling. And then Stephen contrasts 
who they were called to be as the people of God were those who they had become. Then incensed with anger, they took him out and they stoned him to death. It was a lynching. The Sanhedrin had no power to carry out capital punishment and yet that's exactly what they did against Stephen. But what were the charges that were brought against him? What were the things that were said against him? Well, it says, and it says it a couple of times, that, that Stephen, speaking the words of Christ, spoke against this place, and they were talking about the temple, the place where they were meeting, and spoke against the customs of Moses, talking about the law. Now, these guys were offended by Stephen. They were outraged by Stephen. And there's a few reasons, I think, why they were. One was, I'm sure, that they were jealous. He spoke with authority. He had great strength. I think that they were jealous of him, actually. Some of them, I think that they were threatened by him. Though at this point in time, Christianity was still a kind of a, a sect, an aberrant sect, uh, for sure, but a sect within Judaism. But they saw many of these people who were coming over to this way of thinking, and they were threatened by that. That, that threatened their power base. But lastly, because I think that Stephen was questioning their worldview. Now, there can be nothing quite so unsettling as someone questioning your worldview. Those things that you have always known to be right, I've known this forever to be true, and my granddaddy's granddaddy knew this to be true, and yet now I'm wondering if it's slightly less true than I've always believed. And whether that's political convictions, or whether it's historical understandings, or whether it's uh, social understandings, or theological understandings, biblical understandings, when that starts to be questioned, that could be very unsettling for us. And certainly that's what was going on. And they were outraged. They were incensed. If it was in our day and age, they would have been sending Facebook posts and sending crazy emails. And I've been saying to friends just now that we are called to be those who send it. Don't send it. Send it in prayer to God. Don't send it. Don't send the email. Don't post that Facebook uh, message. You don't have to. No one's holding a gun to your head. What would it look like for you to be unlike them and to be more like the people who have been called to be? But here there was worldview questions going on. Here's the trouble. The things, the accusations that they brought against Stephen were not exactly lies. No, no, no. They were far worse than lies. They were half-truths. I think that lies, generally, you can identify them. And pretty much you can say, well, that's just, that's just untrue. Someone tweets out something outrageous with an exclamation mark at the end. I invented gravity. And you're like, well, you're a moron. But when someone does a half-truth, speaks a half-truth, we allow it to come close enough to us because it's got enough truth in it that it can be poured into our ear. But that's where the poison goes into our minds and into our hearts. What were the two chief accusations here? Firstly, they said that Stephen, speaking the words of Christ, had spoken against the temple. Jesus hadn't, in fact, spoken against the temple. He hadn't said that he would destroy the temple. He said the temple would be destroyed. He said, but on the third day, I will raise it again. We know now, reading back through time into Scripture, that Jesus was talking symbolically about his body, that he would be raised again on the third day. Actually, Jesus also was speaking prophetically because the temple was going to be destroyed after this in AD 70 by the Romans. 
but it was half truth, half lie. But it was seen through this lens of offense. The other accusation brought against Stephen was that, that he and, and Jesus of Nazareth was speaking against the customs of Moses. These were the two most essential things to their worldview, to first century Judaism and the temple where you'd meet with God, where you'd go in this localized place. The Holy of Holies was there where you'd go to meet with God. And this, the law, the, the, like honey on the lips that you had to live by. Jesus, in fact, didn't uh, do away with the law. In fact, he said, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. He said, I came to fulfill the law. Jesus said, actually, that he was the one. He was the only one who perfectly fulfilled the law. And here's why that's significant. Because that made Jesus the only one who was perfectly able to go to the cross for you and for me. Those who were closest to Jesus said no sin was ever found in him. No deceit was in this man. He was the only one who was perfect before a perfect God, thus could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross, taking our sin. So these two things were deeply disconcerting to them. They were neither truth nor lie. They were kind of half-truth. Or let me say it in a different way. They were an actually a deeper understanding of something that they had seen and known, but it was a new understanding. Their worldview was being asked to be tweaked, and they didn't like it. So we've looked at the meaning a little bit of the text. We've looked at the text and the context and the whole text. Not as in-depth as we would like, but a little bit. So we've ascertained the meaning. Secondarily, when we come to the Word of God to give it due respect, after ascertaining the meaning, we need to look at the application. But don't just apply it immediately to ourselves. That would be too much of a blunt object. We need to look at the application of that meaning to them and to us and to me. What did it mean to them, to those who were the people of God when they first heard this and when they first read this? Secondly, what does it mean to us as the people of God as a whole? And lastly, what does it mean to me and what does it mean to you personally? And that's where we're going to end. So what did it mean to them? What did all that was going on, what did that mean to them who heard it the first time? It actually had immediate practical implications because what happened was that straight after Stephen was stoned, the church was persecuted and in fact scattered throughout then the known world. It was the fulfillment of Acts 1.8 where Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. And we saw that in the life of the early church. We saw that in the life of Stephen and in the miracles being done. My power will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So you're empowered to be a witness, to be those who share Christ just as you are doing, church. But Jesus said, you'll be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, no one thought that it would come through persecution, but that's in fact how it came. The second thing that applies to them and, and to us, it's a theological application or a theological implication. No longer was Christianity seen as this localized thing. Uh, the, the, the belief that, that God was somehow localized or especially present there in the temple no longer applied. Jesus, in fact, said that he likened himself to the temple and he said, I will come and live in your hearts. That wherever you go, wherever you tread, and friends, wherever you tread in your days and your nights, wherever you tread, Christ goes with you. He dwells in your heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. This is a huge theological shift. 
Some theologians have called this perhaps the, the biggest theological shift in the history of the church. There was also another implication for them, collectively and, and, and I want to say spiritually. Before this time, as I said, Christianity was seen as kind of a splinter sect of Judaism, an aberrant sect to be sure, one that was heretical to be sure, but it was seen as within Judaism. This was a distinct shift. Hereafter, they were seen as their own distinct thing. They were seen as followers of the way. A little later in Antioch, they were called Christians. And I deeply love, and we deeply love in, at this church and value the Jewish tradition. We see so much goodness in it, but there is a distinction, friends. There is a distinction. Hereafter, they more fully understood the words of Christ in John 14, where he said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But lastly, and here's where I want to end, there was enormous emotional and psychological implications to what was going on here, and this does apply to us directly. Now, Saul of Tarsus, like I said, later on, he became Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. But at this point in time, he was Saul the Pharisee. So he was definitely there when Stephen was being martyred. When they were throwing the stones at him, Paul was holding the cloaks and in some way presiding over that execution. And he was almost certainly there when the Sanhedrin was meeting. I mean, Paul was one of those guys who he was an up and coming leader. And he, was, he trained under Gamaliel, the great scribe. He was almost definitely there during the Sanhedrin's deliberations and as they heard these trumped up charges against Stephen. But also, he was likely there during the early stages too. Do you remember that Cilicia, Tarsus, was from that place? And he was likely one of the, the synagogue of the freedmen, one of those people who was coming against Stephen. I bet you that for his whole life, that memory never left him. Even after he met Jesus and even after Paul did all these writings and did extraordinary things for the Lord, I bet you he always thought about that. That time when he involved himself, he was involved in this conspiring and this wheeling and dealing to ensure that an innocent man, a good man, was put to death. So here's my point. There is hope for a sinner like Paul and there is hope for a sinner like me. And friends, there is hope for all of us. All of us can come before God and seek his forgiveness and seek his kindness. We're going to go into a time now where we're going to hear an update from some mission and community impact things. And I believe you'll be delighted because, as I said, this is going to be the quarterly offering for that. And then we're going to have one more song. And then I'm going to come back and end us in prayer. But when we have the song, what I'd ask is if we could be those who reflect. Maybe we as a church, as a collective, have fallen short. Maybe there's things where you have been quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit convicting you. That you may not have been as sweet-spirited as you need to be. You may not have been walking in the strength of the Holy Spirit as you need to be. The, being those who send it, don't send it, who send it in prayer to God rather than send it in an angry way in an email or in a Facebook now, some of you, no problems. You've been doing this wonderfully and we admire you. We long to be like you. You're ace. Some of us, me included, have had things that I'm thinking about. Yeah, I wish I could be a little more like Stephen. A little less like those who are offense prone, just waiting to be offended by those around us. 
So friends, uh, just now we're going to hear a video, an update about what's happening in mission and community impact and uh, towards which our quarterly offering is going today. And then we're going to have the song. So over to you guys. Hey Church, Kelly here. We just want to let you know that we are partnering with Refuge for Women. We're at the estate and we're doing an extreme makeover. We're gardening, we're building sheds, we're building garden beds. We are doing everything possible just to make this house ready for women in October. That's the planned estimated date. San Diego is one of the top 10 cities in the U.S. for trafficking. In San Diego alone, it is an $810 million industry with roughly 10,000 victims and the average age is 16. 80% of these victims are U.S. born. Refuge for Women recently purchased this property that will provide six more beds for survivors of human trafficking. Currently, there are only 30 beds in San Diego for survivors. And on average, each residential victim service organization has to turn away 20 women each month who are seeking a way out. This new property run by Refuge for Women will provide specialized long-term care for women who have escaped human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Safe housing is the first step to freedom and recovery for survivors, and we at North Coast Calvary get to be a part of the solution. Hey, from everybody at Refuge for Women Southern California, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we had 145 people out on this campus today. Everybody's socially distanced, but um, we were connected at the heart. So our excitement is that this home will be open soon to serve women that are coming back from sex trafficking here in America. Um, amazing place of healing. Thank you so much. So friends, thanks for hearing about what's going on in your church. I want to just celebrate those of you who've been pressing in and thank you for those of you who've considered giving to this new and wonderful initiative. But as we were singing that song, I believe that some of us uh, had quickened to us things where we can improve. And I want to end today, I want you to be released I don't want anyone to be under the yoke of condemnation. You know, God has come to free us from that. That was in the past. Let's not drive looking in the rear vision mirror. Let's drive looking out the windshield. So I just want to pray here and I just want to release any of us. And you know what? If over time we fall short again, I'm sure that God will be graceful then. But right now, let's be released. So Lord, I just ask that my friends today would be blessed that they would be blessed this week to rise up more and more and to be the church. I'm inspired by them. Father, let them share the goodness of Christ with those around them. Let them keep a sweet spirit. Let none of us, Lord, be in this place of taking offense. And Father, let them be released from any condemnation. Let them be free to walk the life that you have called them to be as we rise up and be the church. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Friends, would you be blessed? Would you have a wonderful week? And we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.